my goddaughter has named the fudgification process. <laughs> Perfect. Which, which is that as soon as the brownies come out of the oven, you immerse the pan in a, another larger pan of ice water. Aha, uh-huh. you shock your brownies. You shock your brownies. That's that's it. That's the new name for them. Shocked brownies. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And I love to hear from my listeners. My new website, ZestfulAging.com, is up, and it makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. As a psychotherapist with a specialty in food and eating issues, I know that the holidays can be a real challenge when it comes to food. Food and family visits are often a tricky combination. So if you'd like to learn how to have a more peaceful relationship with food, eating, and your body, both during the holidays and the rest of the year, check out my web course, The Wisdom of Mindful Eating. This course is super practical and it's user-friendly. It has the power to change your life. You'll find the course on the website, zestfulaging.com. Our music is provided by Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, will be out in January of 2020. Find out more about Judy at her website, judybanker.com. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a great interview for you today. It's about food, mothers, daughters, and culture. And I spent a lot of time talking about food. As some of you know, I specialize in eating disorders in my clinical practice. And food, of course, is fundamental to life, but it takes on a million meanings. And how we eat says a lot about who we are and what we believe in. To quote Janine Roth, author of Women, Food, and God, she says you can tell a lot about a person by what they put on their plate. So our guest today is Amy Lee Ball, and she's the co-founder of EatDarlingEat.net, which is a storytelling website about mother and daughter relationships centered around something that is fundamental and fun, evocative and provocative, shared across all cultures and generations, and that is food. She's also co-author of four books and a journalist for many national publications, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, Harper's, and Oh, the Oprah Magazine. She writes about health, business, politics, food, travel, and the arts. Welcome to the show, Amy. I'm so glad to be with you, Nicole. You cover interesting stuff. Thank you. (laughs) Would you start by telling us a little bit about how Eat Darling Eat came about? Uh, I'm a longtime journalist, um, and my 
partner in Eat Darling Eat, uh, Steve Baum is a cinematographer, and both of us really consider ourselves storytellers. We're also foodies, although we hate that word and wish, wish there were a better one. But we've often explored the world, finding good things to eat together uh, as longtime friends. And we decided to do a 21st century thing and create a website. Mothers and Daughters uh, was just a natural subject. And food is such an interesting prism to look at those relationships and personalities and experiences, family culture, family history. We now have hundreds of stories from all over the world, but food is the one thing we all have in common. It doesn't matter if your mom was a genius in the kitchen or could barely boil water and kept Szechuan takeout on speed dial. <laughs> it's, there's, there's still something to show about who these women are and what the family is like together when you look at the way they eat. I mean, we have mm-hmm. stories about a woman going to the mall to get cheese on a stick with her mother. Um, we have a story from a very waspy woman, self-described wasp, whose mother served a lot of spam, but always with a cloth napkin and a silver napkin ring next to the spam. Oh, goodness. So you hear that and you know exactly who these women are. So there's something about how your mother feeds you that really becomes important uh, as you develop your identity. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We always say that the stories in Eat Darling Eat run from sweet to sour. And mm. some stories are reminiscences of beloved women. Some are stories about much more complicated families, um, eating disorders, um, mm. uh, not enough food in the house. We have a story from a woman whose mother cleaned offices at night and she went along with her and stole food off the desks of the mm. of the people in the offices where her mother was cleaning. It really helps to define who you are, how your mother fed you when you were growing up. Mm-hmm. I know that you have written widely and you you said that you would share something about your relationship with your mother, a story that you wrote. And I'm wondering if that's something you'd like to to do right now. Sure. I love the name of your podcast, Nicole, Zestful Aging. And it's an attitude that I try to maintain myself. But there are changes uh, in the way mothers and daughters react together. There's sometimes one of life's little full circles where the caretaking switches and the daughter starts to take care of the parent. And this was a story that I wrote a number of years ago for Town & Country called Now It's My Turn, The Mm -hmm. Emotional Roller Coaster of Caring for Your Aging Parents. And I'll read you just a little bit of it, a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, I have been here before. Mother and daughter in a doctor's office painted the color of iceberg lettuce. Worried looks, imperfectly disguised with false smiles, offers to hold my hand while he gives you the shot. I have been a player in this little tableau before, but now I am the grown-up daughter, and the patient is my mother. I am the only child of an only child, and it comes down to this. 
My mother is getting older and I cannot bear it, cannot handle any dissipation of her vigor and mobility, cannot contemplate a time when she might not be so dependably independent, making her wild sculptural jewelry and her famous almond biscotti. My mother is still beautiful and sharp-witted, still turning heads with her great legs, which I did not inherit, mm. and still subtracting 15 years from her real age without engendering doubt. Her heart and lungs are strong as her obdurate will, a lifelong source of contention between us, and last year's successful hip replacement restored an almost girlish spirit. But she's an inch shorter than she used to be, and recently she stopped driving because her reflexes aren't quite up to par and half of her kitchen counter is given over to an arsenal of pills in the war against arthritis. We are each other's only claim to a traditional family, no siblings to consult about her welfare, and my father died when I was a teen. So my mother's mortality has become a palpable concern, a posture I assume every day, an immutable part of my identity, like eye color or height. And now I'm going to skip to the end of the story that I wrote, Nicole, because mm -hmm. I, I love this story. There's no neat and tidy way to tie up this package. And you can be sure, very sure, the package will be passed along like that Christmas fruitcake that gets recycled from one unwelcoming recipient to another. Mm -hmm. There's a classic parable about the continuity of the parent-child crucible, a cautionary tale that is repeated in similar versions in the folklore of cultures from Chinese to Jewish to Pakistani. An aging mother went to live with her daughter and grandson. One night at dinner, she dropped a porcelain soup bowl, which broke into a thousand pieces. The daughter was so upset that she consigned the older woman to eating from a wooden bowl. When the grandmother died, the young boy put a package on the top shelf of his closet. What is that? asked his mother. I'm saving the wooden bowl, said the boy, for you. Oh, Amy. <laughs> I know. Sharp intake of breath, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those experiences that is so resonant with so many women and men, of mm -hmm. course, too. Um, uh, and when I wrote this story, I remember calling some agency that were experts in... Um, aging. And I said that the tentative title of my story was Parenting Our Parents. And the nice woman on the other end of the phone said, well, dear, we don't really like that term because no matter how old they are, they're still our parents. And I thought, that's well-intended sophistry. I mean, mm -hmm. unless you were raised by wolves, you're, <laughs> you're not going to be able to run away from these issues. But, of course, we hear wonderful stories on Eat, Darling, Eat about the way that daughters come to resolution with their mothers mm -hmm. as they get older. Some of the stories are hilarious. <laughs> some are heartwarming. Some are heartbreaking. But I love the way people find ways to resolve past issues, come to terms with them, mm -hmm. and have discussions about them that may have never taken place before. So the healing that can take place exactly, exactly when it's very clear that the end is not so far away and it has to be done soon. Right, right, exactly. And some of, some of the stories that move me are about, well, there's, there's one story I'm thinking of 
it's written by a woman named Bex Bryan. It was about her mother's loss of professional uh, status, that she had been an important writer, and as time went on, um, she wasn't able to get the assignments that she used to. And the call came that for financial reasons, the mother was going to have to move in with the daughter. And the daughter was fighting this idea of losing her hard-won independence. But the mother felt the keen need to be original in her new life. And she liked nothing better than to throw dinner parties for her daughter and her friends. And they were often centered around beans for some reason that the daughter could hardly understand. But then she finally realized that her mother needed to reclaim something of her life. Her professional life had dimmed, so she was claiming something of a domestic life. Something had to be sustained. And really, what is more sustaining than beans? <laughs> yeah, you know, we're talking about the symbolism of food, right? Exactly. Oh, my goodness. It's so interesting. And there's another story I'm thinking of that was was called Must Be Gorgeous uh, on our website. And it was about a woman whose mother had been a cigarette girl at the Drake Hotel in Chicago in the 1960s. And Must Be Gorgeous was the um, advertisement for for mm. the job. Oh, my goodness. And she had this gravity-defying strawberry blonde beehive hairdo. And <laughs> you know, she carried packs of cigarettes around her neck on a tray. And... and as the woman was writing today, she was picking her mother up from a memory care facility mm. for their weekly lunch outing. Mm. And instead of a beehive, her mother had a loose gray braid. And she talks about going to the restaurant where people, people used to stare at her mother because she was so beautiful. And now they stared at her because she was grabbing a piece of salmon with her hands and oh. chewing on it like a grizzly oh. bear. Oh, yeah. Gosh. But... She, again, comes to terms with it, that mm -hmm. who decided? Was it some television chef that decided that a cheeseburger couldn't be dipped into butterscotch pudding? You know? mm, yes. <laughs> I mean, food is meant to be enjoyed with the people you love, and she adored her mother, and this was their new reality. And so there, you know, you're, seems like you're really talking about how do you get to a level of acceptance where you're not arguing with the reality that here she is, your mom is actually picking up a piece of salmon in a restaurant. I mean, and, and there's some choices, right? You could try to shame her. You could leave the restaurant. You right. could do, you know, pretend that it's not happening. But it sounds like what you're saying is in many of the stories, these women come to terms and make some kind of peace with this is where I am right now. A friend of mine who's a social psychologist had a phrase that I always loved, which was, can you can yell at the fates who rarely answer their telephones. <laughs> oh, oh. And you, you can fight with reality or you can try to come to terms with it, as you say. And it's just fascinating to us that food it plays such an important role in the memories and in the resolutions. And there was one story we had from a woman who was a doctor, and she talked about 
the fact that when she was studying, she was a night owl, and she would often go into the kitchen to study after midnight, and she would sometimes bake cookies while she was studying. And whether it was the comforting aroma of those cookies wafting through the house or the clanking in the kitchen, her mother would wake up and be drawn from her bed into the kitchen, and they would have these girl talks. And it was very important for her because the relationship with her mother had been often contentious, a kind of real love-hate relationship. And one of the sticking points for them was that the daughter followed what the mother considered a weird diet. Um, but as the mother got older, the doctors actually began to modify her diet so until it looked very much like the daughter's. <laughs> <laughs> so very, very health conscious. And uh, toward the end of her life, when she was kind of curled up in a hospital bed, she would say to her daughter, you know, it's, it's those cookies that I miss the most mm. the, and the conversations that they engendered. This idea of breaking bread together, yes, yes, you know that it's so much more than how many carbs are in that bread. If it's sourdough, if it's Wonder Bread, but there's something about the humanity of sharing food with another human. Absolutely, and our mothers feeding us has ramifications. Perhaps you didn't get the time together that you needed, but there was at least some kind of sustenance. I mean, I I love the stories where we hear that mother and daughter were in the kitchen and you see you, you see what the personalities are like and what was the soundtrack in the kitchen? What was the daughter trying to listen to the Beatles or Bon Jovi while the mother was listening to Frank Sinatra? Um, you, you see how who the generations are. And then even if mom was making a grilled cheese sandwich, maybe the kitchen was a place of such safety and comfort and familiarity that they could have important conversations there about the family ghosts and goblins and gossip about education and ambition, about sex and dating, whatever it was. Maybe the kitchen was where it took place, and it didn't matter if it was a cup of tea or if mom was sending out for pizza. It's a it's a bonding experience. Exactly. It's an intimate experience yes. because, you know, symbolically, this all goes inside of you. Yes. Yeah, it's feeding you in literal ways, but in emotional and psychological ways mm -hmm. as well. I have a, a, a remembrance of my mother who had an appreciation for good food. She was raised kosher in Brooklyn. Um, but she had a, a very sophisticated palate. And she would say to me, I know Velveeta's junk, but it makes the best grilled cheese. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I uh, was leaving my apartment building in New York recently and bumped into a neighbor who said, oh, I'm loving the stories on Eat, Darling, Eat. I'm enjoying them so much. And I said, well, I hope you'll write a story. Every woman is a daughter. Every woman has a story. And she said, oh, I don't have a story. She said, my mother just admitted to me recently that when she made tomato sauce, she used Velveeta cheese. I always wondered why it was orange. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's the perfect first line of your story. <laughs> oh, that's, that's classic. <laughs> 
You know, it's funny when I go into Zabar's, it feels like, uh, first of all, I will often announce I want to be buried here. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, it's like going into it's hard to describe the experience. And for those of our listeners um, around the world, do you want to describe Zabar's? I'm oh. sure you could do it better than I do. It's the classic New York deli on steroids. <laughs> it's, I don't know, how old is it? 90 years old, 120 years old. It's been around a long time. The men and sometimes women, I guess, behind the counters can be incredibly rude. Um, but it's, it's just, it's a classic. It's, it's where you go to find anything that you want to eat, not necessarily traditionally Jewish, although that was really how it started. I can tell you a funny story about my own relationship with Zabar's. A number of years ago, I wrote a story for the New York Times Sunday Magazine about the Christmas dinner that I give every year. And it includes my mother's cranberry relish, which is made with preserved ginger and syrup. And it's really delicious. I highly recommend it. <laughs> and um, that year, I went out to get the ginger and syrup at the places where I usually find it, the grocery stores around my neighborhood, and nobody had it. It was very odd. I finally hauled myself up to Zabar's, which is not the most convenient neighborhood for me, and said to the manager there, excuse me, do you carry ginger preserved in syrup? And he said, what is it with ginger preserved in syrup? Everybody <laughs> has been coming in to ask for ginger preserved in syrup. Was there some kind of article about it? And I said sort of sheepishly, well, yeah, there was, and I wrote it. And he started yelling at me in the middle of Zabar's, Lady, you got to tell us these things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he had to stock up because if people read about ginger oh. preserved in syrup in New York Times magazine, uh, they would go to Zabar's oh, for it. Oh, my goodness. That's a great story. It's an experience to be in there. It's a small, it's pretty small, and you're usually bumping up against people. Mm -hmm. feels like there, it's this like little microcosm of the world somehow, all different kinds of people in there. And I think they share a love and connection of this historical store. And it's, it's just got a feel, you There's know. There's a wonderful scene in the movie You've Got Mail where Meg Ryan gets in the wrong line at Zabar's. Oh, boy. The, the, the uh, cash-only line, and she oh, only dear. has a credit card. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's <laughs> yeah. not going to be good. No. <laughs> no, she has to uh, charm her way out of that one, as, mm. as only Meg Ryan could, I, I guess. I can imagine. You know, I was thinking of Patty Hinnich, um on PBS, Patty's Table, and how she brings her sons into the kitchen, how she dissects the meal, um, some, you know, some beautiful kind of salsa or something really beautiful that she makes. And she really brings that, it appears, what we see, into her mothering that, you know, uh, her son's going to really love this one or one of her sons gets to pick a dessert that she's going to then create. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good example, I think, of how 
uh, a mother uses food as that bridge to their children. Yeah, absolutely. We've occasionally been asked at Eat Darling Eat, why don't we why don't we have stories about mothers and sons? <laughs> and maybe someday we will. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, the experience of mother and child, I'll use the broader term for a moment here, in the kitchen together is a universal one. I mean, it, and again, it doesn't matter what's the, what the food is. We had a story from a woman whose mother grew up in American Samoa. And she was a, she, she's kind of a historic princess. So she was served by servants all of her life and didn't know how to make anything except hot dogs. But being together with your mother in the kitchen making hot dogs is still an experience. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a food connection available whether it's something that's delicious whether it's whether it really reveals who the people are i remember a story we had from an italian woman who said that the aroma she associates with her mother is part chanel number five part tomato sauce and part clorox (laughs) (laughs) So that covers it all, doesn't you, it? You immediately understand. It's a woman for whom cleanliness is next to godliness, but mm. she's always at the stove making her family a pot of sauce. Mm. What's your favorite comfort food? Well, uh, I guess it's some form of soup, but I'm saying that because I'm talking to you on a wintry day. Mm-hmm. So if you asked me in July, it might be something different. I tend to love Mediterranean foods, although I am not Mediterranean in heritage. So I love big vats of things like moussaka and eggplant parmesan and Mm -hmm. pasta. I love to feed my friends. Um, I live in an apartment where I tore down the wall between the kitchen and the dining room so that I could talk to my friends while I was cooking rather than being cut off from them. Um, When I took possession of this apartment, there was a wall there and I hadn't yet taken title of the apartment. So I didn't really have the right to tear down the wall yet. But there was a carpenter who was working here for me. And I said to him, Mr. Aracena, is there any way that wall could fall down? And he, he called me at my office the next day and said, I just wanted to let you know that half the wall fell down today. The other half is going to fall down tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that story. Yeah. And so is it a um, – do your guests also contribute to preparation of the food? Do you kind of give them assignments or do they come expecting to get their hands in the food? Or are you the kind of person who wants to prepare and, and serve them? I'd say more of the latter. I I will occasionally hand out assignments, but it usually has to do with peeling or scraping or removing the shells from chestnuts or mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that. The kitchen's not that big. It's a, it's a New York apartment, so um, mm-hmm. it's not a huge amount of space for multiple sets of hands on the on the rolling pin. But I love giving them 
a glass of wine and having them entertain me while I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. And so is that one of your major hobbies is to bring your friends over and cook for them? I, I love doing that. It's, it's a gift of love. It really is. Mm-hmm. Feeding people is love. And you can do it so much better in your own home most of the time, mm-hmm. much, much more economically as well. Oh, yes. Um, and it's, it's um, I mean, the word homey refers to home. It's what you, it's what you want your guests to feel. And it was it was uh, something that I I did do with my mom. My mom was um, she was kind of famous for her boiled water when she got married, <laughs> and my dad gave her a book that was called "The Working Girl Must Eat," and I still have the card inside of it that says, "Darling, now you will not have an excuse." Mm-hmm. And she learned how to cook and even became adept at certain things. As I was saying uh, to a friend earlier, one of the things that I admire about my mother is that she moved along with the times. She didn't cling to ideas of past generations. And it had to do with music. It had to do with fashion. And it certainly had to do with food. So I once gave her a Chinese cookbook and all of a sudden her shelves were filled with sesame oil and hoisin <laughs> sauce and a, and a wok. And she be, she became adept at a number of different cuisines. And when I was a little girl, I always had roles to play when she entertained. I would be the one who would put the hors d'oeuvres on a tray and pass them around and then perhaps play for Elise on the piano for the guests. <laughs> right. And I, that's it's what I it's what I carry on from her. It's a it's a real memory and it's a real inheritance from her. So in any given day, you're a busy woman. You're a writer. You've got all kinds of projects going on. How do you feed yourself on a you know on a weekday where you've got things lined up and deadlines? Are you do you pack your own lunch? How, how does that look in real life? It's funny, I was um, talking to a friend recently and saying that I love my own cooking, (laughs) she said immodestly, Uh, (laughs) but sometimes dinner is um, yogurt and granola, and she said, but you can't have wine with that. (laughs) Right. Why not? (laughs) Um, So yes, sometimes dinner is yogurt and granola. It's really easy to cook well for oneself, simply, quickly. I tend to have a vegetable-centric diet, so I I roast any sort of vegetable. You stick anything in Mm -hmm. the oven, Mm -hmm. cauliflower, broccoli, fennel, Brussels sprouts, onions, carrots, anything. You stick it in the oven with some olive oil, salt, Mm -hmm. and pepper at 425 degrees. It will be addictive. It will be like potato chips. You can't stop eating it. Mm-hmm. Put that over pasta, rice, quinoa, something like that. It's kind of a go-to, go-to meal for me. Mm-hmm. I see. And I always have brownies. You have brownies? <laughs> I always have brownies. I mean, it's, it's just I need chocolate in my life. Mm-hmm. And what recipe do you use, if I may ask? Well, I play around. I have a current favorite that uses a very unusual ingredient, tahini. 
I've seen that. Seen the tahini brownies around? Nobody can quite guess what's in them, but it gives it a wonderful, nutty, yes. but indescribable flavor. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. yeah. And moist, I would imagine. Very moist. And I have a process that my goddaughter has named the fudgification process. <laughs> Perfect. Which, which is that as soon as the brownies come out of the oven, you immerse the pan in a another larger pan of ice water. Aha, uh -huh. you shock your brownies. You shock your brownies. That's that's it. That's the new name for them. Shocked brownies. Oh my goodness. And that caramel what does that do? It sort of solidifies. That what's what's the chemistry that's I, happening? I, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a scientist. Mm. I have no idea what's happening internally. Mm. But there is a fudgification that takes mm, place. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to know. So I've taken to added, adding grated zucchini to, to chocolate things, yeah. which, you know, doesn't have a flavor, but it keeps yeah. them so moist. And, you know, for those of us in upstate New York, uh, there's a lot of zucchini to, 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 to deal <laughs> yes, with at yes. the end of summer. you got to put in everything. But, you know, it does have that uh, effect of keeping things very moist and lovely. The really disappointing thing about brownies is discovering how good they taste straight from the freezer. Ah, because you think you're course. protected that you ah. you, re you have to plan ahead to have a brownie. But you're making them better. But you're really making them better. There's a way that they become more fudge-like. That's true. Right. It's true. And how are you with ganache? Are you do you add ganache or? Just straight up. No, I, and I don't add nuts either. I'm kind of a purist about brownies. I like nuts and other things, but brownies have to be pure and simple. Mm. Um, you use butter, I assume. Uh, of course. <laughs> and is it French butter or is it just fairway no. butter? It's Fairway butter is just fine for brownies. Okay. But I will admit that each of the stories on Eat Darling Eat includes a... Um, a mother-daughter photo and a recipe mm -hmm. and if I see a recipe that has margarine in it oh I know I I, I try to get it, it it does happen sometimes because we're getting vintage stories vintage yes. photos and vintage recipes sure of course um, but I try to make a conversion or at least offer an option to say mom might have used margarine but mm -hmm. it'll taste so much better if it's butter you know, it's funny. I was thinking that you may be getting recipes that have pork lard in them, which is now, of course, you know, mm -hmm. fashionable again. So mm -hmm. do you have anything that's come full circle? Oh, yeah. We have people who have gotten over their fear of butter, their fear of lard. <laughs> they, um, some of the stories have not a real recipe in them and those are amusing like we had one story from a, a woman whose mother was an artist and she worked in a studio and when the daughter came home from school her mother would just shout fix yourself a snack and the snack was always store-bought cookies like oreos and a glass mm -hmm. of milk so she really has no interest in homemade cookies she the, the the cookies that are reminiscent of her mother are oreos in, mm -hmm. in a plastic package and I read the ingredients on a package of Oreos and I want nothing to do with them. But for some people, it's nostalgic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, it's just so much about perception, isn't it? Well, there's also, we have a, a lot of stories about body image and body shaming and eating disorders and things mm-hmm. like that, too, which uh, we, we do we do hear about those things. And I'm always pleased when there is some resolution for the person that they have gotten through those experiences. Because for me, I, I, I do eat a healthful diet, but a life without raisin pumpernickel isn't going to, it just isn't worth living. Or maybe it'll be longer, or maybe it'll just seem longer. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I totally agree with that and really about mostly fresh, mostly, you know, colorful. And then, you know, chocolate is mandatory. There's and I, no, I always yeah. say I have a house that might run out of toilet paper, but it will never run out of vanilla extract. Yes, yes, I love that. I have my and, priorities. Yes, and I'm sure you use really high quality vanilla X. I'm just guessing yours does not have alcohol in it. Of course. Of course. And organic. I mean, you need to read, if you buy things in a jar or a can, you kind of need to read them. Mm -hmm. And I'm so jealous when I read the stories that we get on Eat Darling Eat about people that grew up on a farm or had access to so much farm fresh food. Mm. We, We had one story that was called The Mom in the Mink Collared Sweater. It was about a mom who uh, went back to work after her divorce and moved with her children back to her own mother's house, which was a farm. And so the mother went to work, and she was a rather glamorous figure in the mink collared sweater and the high-heeled shoes and the, the beautiful hairdo and makeup. But the grandma was the one who was in charge of feeding the family and everything was so fresh. She grew rhubarb on the side of the house in a little garden. And the woman who's writing the story talks about her grandmother cooking the rhubarb. And it was so tempting that she, it was while it was cooling on the kitchen counter, she went in to lick it and she broke her tooth on the kitchen counter. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, freshness is you can't you can't fake that. Yeah. And and sometimes there is a a a wonderful history of fresh food from our mothers and sometimes there is not. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have to figure that out on our own. Uh, and then pass the, the new knowledge on to our own families and friends. And figure out what we want to keep of our experience and yeah. what we want to change. Yeah, it's what we see in these stories all the time is decisions made about what what still works and what is still meaningful, what is still evocative, um, and what changes are made. And I, I love those little full circles that I mentioned earlier where sometimes the daughter is cooking for the mother now. And um, mom gave it the office. She's done her job. She's been cooking for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And now she wants a bit of a rest. And the daughter has taken over um, using some of mom's recipes, some of mom's standards, some of mom's traditions, putting her own take on it. We love, we love hearing about the cultures that are carried forward 
whether it's Japanese or Filipino or Swedish or Kenyan or whatever it is, um, it reminds people who they are, where they came from. Mm-hmm. Food tells you what your culture is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, your place in the world. Exactly. Um, yeah. Who who we are, where we've come from. Immigration is such a hot topic these days, and it's a subject that comes up in a lot of the stories that Eat Darling Eat because people people have pride about where they came from and food is one of those ways to to show that pride um, mm-hmm. to acclimate and accommodate to a new culture but to remember where you came from mm-hmm. um, whether the experience is valued uh, can be seen in how much you're carrying forward of the tradition. Mm -hmm. We have a story from a woman who grew up in the Soviet Union where they had a little dacha, a tiny little cottage out in the countryside where they were able to grow food. And the story was called Wild Time because it was abundant and it was what her mother could use on, on their food to make it more flavorful. And now she, she still, although she lives in the United States, she, makes a drink called kvass that reminds her of those Soviet winters when they had a little Soviet car and would drive out to their little dacha and pick potatoes. And Mm -hmm. the stories are are so important, just constantly reminding us of who we are and our Mm. value systems. Absolutely. And how do you get your stories? People just submit them on the website? Yes. The website is eatdarlingeat.net, and Mm -hmm. there is a submission page there that gives out pretty clear directions. We're delighted to answer any questions. We often have a kind of a back-and-forth Q&A with questions or clarifications. It's it's often where the delicious details emerge. And uh, we really want this experience to be meaningful and rewarding for everyone who participates, whether it's a a sweet story or an unhappy story or something in between. Every woman is a daughter. Every woman is a daughter. And as I shared with you earlier, we are going out to 78 countries. And so I'm going to make a little plug for this. If you have stories that are talking about food and and motherhood or daughterhood or any of these things, that they can submit them. Absolutely. Eat, Darling Eat. And, and you will take a look and uh, be in very good company. We have, we have followers in 100 countries. Ah. And we have stories from six of the seven continents. Oh, my goodness. Do you know anybody in Antarctica? No. I, I don't. I don't. I, I have people in New Zealand and Australia, but, boy, I have not gotten to Antarctica yet. Well, that's the one that's missing for us, too. Okay. Oh, that, you know, they have to be eating up there, all those scientists. I'd be happy to hear about whatever it is, the it's, whale blubber that's stored yeah, during the winter. Of course, yeah. But maybe they're fantastic cooks in Antarctica. They <laughs> might be. So we're, we're challenging the people in Antarctica 
send stories and tell us how you're eating. This is a call for submissions from Antarctica. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Sounds like a good title. There you go. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your very clear passion about food and the meaning of food, the symbolism, the relationship between mom and daughter. It's, I, it really, I, I, I love talking about this with you. It's and been a pleasure, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.